0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have offered Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson, I'm the Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public Information on upcoming town hall forums may be found online at ewestminster.org. We would like today especially to welcome the many students in our audience, especially those, a group of 50 of them, from the Perpich Center for the Arts here in Minneapolis. Welcome to you all, nice to have you here today. It's my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our 25th anniversary series on the arts, creativity, and the common good. Playwright Edward Albee is one of the most powerful forces in American theater today. For over four decades, he has prodded, provoked, challenged, and amused theatergoers with plays that, as he describes, hold a mirror up to the audience that say, this is how you are. His first play, The Zoo Story, premiered in 1959 in Germany because no theater in America would take a chance on an unknown playwright. After the play's initial success, doors opened to him and he was hailed as the leader of a new movement in American theater. Five plays followed The Zoo Story, including his best-known work, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? First produced in 1962, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? won the Tony and the New York Drama Critics Circle Award and startled an Ozzy and Harriet world with the marriage games of George and Martha. Three of Mr. Albee's subsequent plays received Pulitzer Prizes, including A Delicate Balance, Seascape, and Three Tall Women. His recent play, The Goat, or Who is Sylvia? won the 2002 Tony Award for Best Play, and this past spring, the revival on Broadway of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf received wide critical acclaim. Mr. Albee is a Kennedy Center honoree and a recipient of the National Medal of Arts. He was recently awarded a Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement. He has a new book that will be out later this month entitled Stretching My Mind, which offers essays on art, politics, and theater. Mr. Albee is recognized not only as one of the most celebrated artists of our time, but as one of our nation's most eloquent advocates for creative artistic expression, believing that the arts do not stand apart from the fabric of life, as he says, but are a deep part of it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Edward Albee.
1: Good afternoon. I see a row of seats there, reserved for the board of the Guthrie (laughs) Theatre. I notice it is empty. And I thought their production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was much better than that. There are several things I'd like to talk about this afternoon. They're all interrelated, the arts, education, and censorship. But before I do that, let me just tell you the briefest history of myself, who I am, and how I got this way, (laughs) to justify my taking up your time. I was born in Virginia uh, to parents of whom I have absolutely no knowledge. I was put up for adoption when I was a week old and was removed from Virginia to uh, the suburbs of New York City. When I was adopted, the rules were very, very strict. The natural parents could not know who the adoptive parents were, could have no sense of where their child had gone, and the adoptive parents could know nothing about the natural parents. This was mutually protective of everybody, I think, except the adopted child but those were the rules. There were further rules. You could only be adopted by a family of the same ethnic background and religion of your natural parents, which meant, I suppose, in my case, that if a Jewish family or, heaven forbid, a black family had wanted to adopt me, they would have been forbidden. The rules have changed, fortunately, but this was 77 years ago what can i say about the people who adopted me i will be generous they did not know how to be parents and i probably didn't know very much about how to be uh, a son we did not we did not get along i found rather young that i disliked the majority of their values uh, their politics their bigotries their uh, attitudes about most things that uh, I find important, but that uh, I must say at the same time they gave me a very, very good education. We have a two-tier educational system in this country, unfortunately, whether we like it or not. The children of well-to-do families, generally speaking, get a far better education than the children of poor families. Uh, I was reading in the New York Times this morning, an article pointing out that uh, of the children who go to college, one in three or four of uh, families with incomes over $100,000 a year go to college. Maybe one out of 50 with the incomes under $25,000 go to college. We have a two-tier educational system. I was educated. I say fortunately, though I must have missed a great deal, in private schools where I received about as good an education as money and responsible teachers could avail me of. They taught me many, many things. They taught me, most importantly I think, that unless you receive an aesthetic education, unless you receive an education in the arts you are not receiving a complete education. And if you receive no proper education in the arts, you emerge as a highly educated barbarian. I was, lucky. I was lucky in this. I managed to get myself thrown out of several of the schools that I was sent to for reasons that I no longer remember. I wished to be at home rather than away. I was even thrown out of a military school, which is not easy. I'll be, I will not name this military school because there would be lawsuits if I do. But as I remember it, they, had only, they taught only two courses, sadism and masochism. <laughs> that these courses were compulsory. No electives there. And I passed both developing along the way a tiny preference for one over the other, but that's another lecture. (laughs) I graduated finally from a school called Choate in Connecticut, a school that has managed to graduate among the usual corporate thugs and and, and, and CIA operatives. Um, A number of people whom I have admired greatly, including President John Kennedy and Adlai Stevenson, who I think should have been president. A very good school. I went on to college and discovered that uh, what they wished to teach me at college was not what I wished to learn and so I got myself thrown out of that. I had decided when I was eight years old that I was a writer. I had written nothing (laughs) but I liked reading and perhaps I thought I would like to read something that I could understand. So I began writing, having no common sense at the age of eight, not much now, but even less then. I began writing poetry. I wrote poetry for 20 years, from the age of eight till the age of 28 when I stopped. I was getting better, but it was still pretty bad, pretty bad stuff. I wrote two novels in my teens, which I like to think were the two worst novels that could be written by an American teenager. And the essay form, since I was a creative writer, the essay form was, uh, was, was beyond me. I was published very young. I had poetry published twice in two West Texas tiny little poetry magazines. Once when I was 15 and once when I was 17. It is coincidental, I think, I'm not sure, that on each occasion that these mag- this magazine would publish a poem of mine, That was the last issue they ever published. (laughs) It is good preparation for a life uh, in in the theater. Um, I moved, was thrown out of my family uh, house um, when I was uh, 19, which was fine with me. And I uh, was disowned, disinherited, good. And I moved to Greenwich Village where I spent the next 20 years of my life truly educating myself, because one of the things they had taught me at the Choate School was the function of a formal education is to teach you how to educate yourself continually once you're finished with your formal education. It was a lesson I learned well. It was very, very interesting in New York City, in Greenwich Village in the uh, late 40s and and, and the 50s in in this country. It was the uh, beginning of a cultural and intellectual renaissance that had not existed except perhaps in the great days of Concord in in, in the 19th century. It was an enormously exciting exciting time. The avant-garde theater from Europe had arrived in the United States. And those of us who cared about theater could see the works of Beckett and Genet and Ionesco and Pirandello and Brecht. Uh, The small off-Broadway theaters were the welcome home uh, to to these plays. The abstract expressionist art movement was getting started. And uh, in classical music, concerts of contemporary classical music began to be attended my goodness, there would be more people in the audience than there were performing on stage. It was a very, very interesting and and, and exciting time uh, in the arts. Nothing was very expensive. Nobody was famous yet. And everybody was friendly. Nobody had an agent. and, And nobody was suspicious of anybody else. We would go en masse from one event to another. We learned a great deal about the nature of the arts from participating in them. It was an enormously exciting time. And then things began to happen, unfortunately. Uh, A combination of perhaps the fact that we were educating ourselves too much in the arts, we were becoming too aware of our responsibilities to ourselves and to our society. And the occasionally deadening hand of capital, capitalism, was beginning to have very, very serious and deleterious effect on the the arts. And this is a condition that that has continued, I'm afraid, and is doing serious damage uh, to this country. I'm convinced that you cannot be a fully educated person unless you have a full education in the arts. I'm also convinced that nobody can ultimately think about democracy or participate in democracy intelligently and fully without an education that includes an education in the arts. I'm convinced of both of these things. The problem with the educational structure in the United States, aside from the fact that we have this ugly two-tier educational system, where in some cities, garbage men are paid more than public school teachers, is that we are educating only some of our people and leaving the others to fend for themselves. And there is practically no effective aesthetic education in our, in our public school systems and, indeed, much in our colleges. I was shocked a couple of years ago when the New York Times published a poll that they had taken about entering students that I believe Harvard University, when the students were asked, why are you there? The reply of 70% of them was, we are here, so when we get out, we can get a high-paying job. Is that the function of education? Is that our responsibility to the opportunity of education just to get rich? I thought it was to know something more about consciousness, to know a good deal more about what our possibilities were and what the dangers were, but apparently uh, I I was mistaken. The uh, function of an education is to put us in contact with all of the possibilities and all of the dangers in 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 a democratic society it is our responsibility to be able to relate the aesthetic experience to our own possibilities I uh I travel around a lot I go from one country to another and I've spent a lot of time over the years in totalitarian societies And uh, this brings us to the subject of, uh, of censorship. There are two kinds of censorship. There is the censorship which is imposed from without by a totalitarian society. And then there is the censorship from within. The censorship that we impose upon ourselves. The choices we make to deny ourselves difficult and valuable choices. I think the second, the censorship that we impose upon ourselves, is far more dangerous than the censorship from without. We can always get rid of dictatorships. We cannot get rid as easily of a society that does not wish to live fully and dangerously in a democracy. I was in the Soviet Union just before it collapsed. I was there much earlier. And I had conversations where I talked to the cultural commissars and I also talked to the dissident dissident writers. The cultural commissars showed me that in, that in that country, people were told what they could read, what they could see, what they could hear, and what they could think. And I saw many writer friends of mine put in prison and several uh, executed for their beliefs. The kind of censorship that exists in a democratic society, which as I said, I consider infinitely more dangerous, is the censorship, it's a dual censorship. It is the censorship of the commercial market determining that value is based upon that which will sell the most, rather than that which is most useful. And a society which does not wish to be faced with the tough choices that must be made if we are to function fully and intelligently as a society. This uh, censorship of self is the danger that we face so much in our society. We cannot vote intelligently because an intelligent vote is a vote not only for ourselves, but for everybody else in our society. We cannot vote intelligently unless we are, wish, unless we are willing to rid ourselves of all forms of censorship, self-censorship, and censorship from without. It it is impossible. Now, one of the reasons why an aesthetic education is so important in a democratic society, and in any society, is this, and has something to do with what it is that separates us, distinguishes us from all the other animals, if there are any creationists here, which I doubt in Minnesota, but perhaps there are. (laughs) If there are any creationists here, I apologize. But there is something that distinguishes us from all the other animals. For a while it was thought that perhaps it was simply that uh, we were the only animal that could use tools. We've discovered since that many animals use tools. It was just discovered last week, at least by the New York Times, (laughs) that gorillas also use tools as well as chimpanzees and others. And there are only three animals on this planet, I believe, who kill their own kind for pleasure. We humans happen to be one of them. It was thought for a while that perhaps we were the only animal capable of constructing a a, a coherent society. But the more we began to look at the societies of ants and termites and and other creatures, we saw they were capable of putting together a society at, at least as rational as that of mainland China. It was thought for a while, that we were perhaps the only animal possessed of, what is it called, an immortal soul. Well, when I hear that, uh, I think of two things. One, that I have spent much of my life with Irish wolfhounds and know that they are possessed with souls far in excess to that of many of my friends, (laughs) former friends. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm reminded of what is I hope not an apocryphal remark made by a late 19th century French Catholic novelist, which was, if I may not be with my dog in heaven, I will not go. (laughs) But let me tell you what it is that I'm convinced is the only thing that distinguishes us from all of the other animals and why an aesthetic education is so intrinsically important to a democracy. We are the only animal that makes art We are the only animal that has created the metaphor to define ourselves to ourselves to define consciousness to ourselves and i am also convinced that this invention of the of the metaphor the invention of art is part of the evolutionary process we all used to have a tail you know Uh, don't look now but at the very base of your spine you have a little jut of bone called the coccyx i believe This is the vestigial remnant of your tails. To oversimplify just slightly, I think this is what occurred. Somewhere along the line, our tails fell off and we grew art. (laughs) We 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 grew the metaphor to be able to relate ourselves to our society and our society Uh, to ourselves. It is why an aesthetic education is so fundamentally important to the proper function of of a a democracy. Um, I worry, I worry greatly that as a society we uh, are becoming this kind of society that, uh, when a poll was taken of I think 3,000 people a number of years ago, and they were asked the following tricky question. Would you be willing to give up the Bill of Rights for some security? The majority of the people said, yes. Not understanding, perhaps, that the Bill of Rights is the only thing that guarantees us any security. Our refusal to educate ourselves politically, socially, morally, and aesthetically can easily be the death of us. Let me conclude by, by saying really this in a democracy we can have anything we want it is equally true that in a democracy we will end up with exactly what we deserve thank you for your time
0: Thank you, Edward Albee. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister here at Westminster, and the moderator of today's forum. Our guest is playwright Edward Albee. While the ushers here in the sanctuary collect questions from the audience, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, Dr. and Mrs. William Ludwig, and the Hoegnander Family Foundation. We also want to thank all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for the next presentation in our series on the arts, creativity, and the common good in just two weeks on Thursday, October 20, when musician and scholar of African American music, Bernice Johnson Reagan, founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock, will be our guest. Mr. Albee, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question concerns a a person who is not a local playwright, but we do consider him more or less one of our own, Mr. August Wilson, who died just recently and of course lived in St. Paul, Minnesota and did much of his work here. Any comments about his life and his contribution to theater and particularly his critical perspective on America in the last decades.
1: I knew August uh, very well. He and I would uh, go to Alaska together for the last Frontier Theatre Conference for over a uh, several year period. I knew August well and I admi- and admired both him uh, and, and his work. Uh, he probably changed American theater as much as any American playwright has. He brought to the attention, not necessarily the willing attention, but the, to the attention of, of many, the uh, facts and truths about being an Afro-American in, uh, in, in the United States. His 10 play cycle of uh, 100 years of uh, African life in, in America, Stands by itself as a, an, an extraordinary, extraordinary opportunity for us to learn from, and also the plays are uh, pretty damn good. He was uh, an important playwright. We have had a number of important black playwrights in the United States: uh, Ed Bullins, uh, Adrian Kennedy, to name but a few. Two, name but two. A number of them. But I think uh, August was on his way to accomplishing something that they did not, making the black experience accessible to a large audience, rather than to specialists who cared something about serious theater uh, alone. And I was especially happy when I was teaching at Brandeis uh, one year, and uh, August came up to do a reading. I have never heard a playwright read from his own work as brilliantly as August did. He was a good man. I found him a sweet man, a shy man, and uh, I'm so sorry that he died before he was able to receive all of the awards and prizes that were due him.
0: Several members of the Guthrie Board wish to point out that they are in fact present, And. Simply well, then did not you want to sit, sit in where the first you're supposed day. to. <laughs> they are here, and not only that, they want you to know how much they deeply appreciate your work and are grateful for what you've done to <laughs> American theater. Oh, thanks, thanks.
1: Yeah, but if they've been sitting where they were supposed to, I wouldn't be able to make my joke
0: question about uh, your own emotional favorite what is your own emotional favorite of your plays and why Uh, the answer to
1: that no matter what year it is asked is always the same the play that I happen to be writing right now (laughs) because that is the only one that I know I have not failed with (laughs) Uh, we all fail we should all try to do more than we possibly can and uh, the the more we try, and the less our failure, the better, the better we are as, uh, as writers. But uh, it is always the play that I am working on now, which I really don't want to talk about very much. Uh, it is a play called Me, Myself and I. It is about identical triplets. <laughs> and in spite of the title, it has absolutely nothing to do with me.
0: I must say we have some of the most interesting questions I've seen in my many years of doing the forum here, Mr. Albee. This one is, Dear Mr. Albee, I've been to the zoo. Please comment.
1: The line is,
0: Mr. I've been to the zoo,
1: to get it correct. Uh, Please comment. Uh, Well, he's referring, he or she is referring to my, my, the first play I will admit to having written, uh, The Zoo Story. Though, indeed, I did write a three-act sex farce when I was 13. <laughs> when my knowledge of, of, uh, of farce was academic and my knowledge of sex was singular. But, um, <laughs> with, with the exception of that, The Zoo Story really is my first, my first completed play. For those of you who don't know it, it is set in New York Central Park where a young uh, publisher, is reading in Central Park. And when I wrote the play, that wasn't a suicidal thing to do. Uh, And is accosted by an outsider named Jerry, who uh, intrigues him with stories of what real life is all about, and then finally persuades the publisher to arrange for his, Jerry's, suicide. Uh, I've been to the zoo. Probably, what, what did I mean by it? I don't know, I'd have to ask what the character Jerry meant. Because when I write my plays, I, I don't start with a thesis. I don't start saying, now I must write a play about this or that social or psychological problem. I discover that I have been thinking about some people in an environment, and I learn more about them, and then I sort of turn the writing of the play over to them, and I write my plays to find out why I'm writing them. Now, once you've written a play, I suppose you can make all sorts of guesses as to what you intended. And my guesses are better than that of most critics, but um, (laughs) still not necessarily totally accurate. Uh, I've been to the zoo means uh, I have lived uh, life fully, among poor people, among destitute people, among disarrayed people uh, in our society. I've seen the inequities, and uh, I think I have lived life fully enough to know whether or not I wish to continue living it. I suspect that's what I meant.
0: As a long-time admirer of your play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I've often wondered what it's like for you to see your play in its many revivals. How has your estimation of your early work changed over the years?
1: I don't think about uh, my plays in in that sense. I don't think about them that, oh, that's an early one, how did they change and become a later one? Every time I write a play, I pretend this is the first play, not only that I have written, but every time I write a play, I pretend it is the first play that anybody has ever written, which is the only way to be free of influence. I tell my students, you must know every single thing that you possibly can, not only about theater, but about the visual arts, and about classical music before you try to write a play. But every time you go to your table, it is the first play that, that anybody has ever written. How do I feel about productions of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, well, those of them that I like, I like. Those of them that I think are giving the play a fair shake uh, and are engaging an audience and in the way that the audience should be engaged, uh, I'm very happy with those productions. I have seen some productions uh, where I've been very unhappy. But uh, for the most part, I've been a fortunate career, I think. I I have worked with very good actors, very good directors, and uh, very often with very good audiences. But I, I can't speak for productions that I've had absolutely nothing to do with, of course.
0: Is it your sense that today's playwrights have a difficult time getting plays of conscience or politically controversial works? Produced?
1: of course. <laughs> when I started out, theater prices for a Broadway play were $6 and for an off-Broadway play were $2. Production costs were nothing. We did The Zoo Story and Craps Last Tape at the Provincetown Playhouse for $1,500. We did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway in 1962 for $42,000. Off-Broadway productions are now costing half a million dollars and Broadway productions a million and a half or two million dollars. Ticket prices are up to 70 and 80 dollars on Broadway. Not only does this discourage the audiences that we want in the theater, young people and people who haven't been to the theater before and minority groups, it turns our theater into a repository only for the middle-aged and the well-to-do and the white, which has nothing to do with American society, really. Um, What was the question I was answering?
0: How how difficult it is to get a politically controversial play produced today.
1: Okay, considering the fact that it is much more expensive to take a chance for the people who put up the money for plays, even regional theaters, but certainly for, for Broadway producers, they wish to play it safe. They wish for plays to uh, not ask too many questions, or if the plays do raise questions about how we live, raise easy questions, not tough ones. This thing that I've been saying for years that it's the playwright's responsibility to do, to hold a mirror up to society and say, this is who you are, this is how you behave. If you don't like it, change. That's becoming more and more difficult uh, as the killing hand of commerce is is determining what is acceptable to an audience. This in part because an audience decides it does not want to be troubled by its arts. It wants to be reassured and congratulated when indeed the proper posture uh, is probably infinitely more correct.
0: As a follow-up question to that, uh, the the Twin Cities has one of the largest, I believe the second largest uh, fringe festivals in the world today. Uh, What is the impact on the theater scene of of the Fringe Festival and other efforts to bring uh, uh, smaller venues into the the, uh, theater world? It was even
1: true in New York City when I was growing up, but I would always see far more interesting theater in the small theaters, in the basement theaters, in the the theaters of one and two hundred seats than I would see in, in the large Broadway theaters. And I would see more interesting art, not at the museums, but in the small galleries, and it was the small, nouveau chamber groups that were doing the most interesting classical music, not the Philharmonic. Um, I think that the uh, the birth of the regional theaters was a terribly important event in, in American theater. in In the United States, it's so it's a fine to have a cultural center in New York city is, for better or worse, whether you like it or not, the major cultural center for theater, arts, visual arts, classical music, and publishing uh, in in the United States. In Europe, London is uh, the center for Britain, but Britain is a small country, and everybody can get to London. In, in, In France, Paris is the cultural center, but France is a small country, and everybody can get to Paris. The United States is a very, very large country. And it was the responsibility of theatre to broaden itself, to move to other major cities so that everybody didn't have to go to New York City to participate in the arts. And the regional theatres and the small theatres within cities have done a terribly important job to broaden the theatre landscape uh, for for the American audience. Of course, they are facing a difficult problem. The more expensive theatre gets and the more unwilling audiences become to participate in that, which is dangerous and thoroughly educating. They are presented with people who say to them, well, I will continue to support your theater, but you, you damn well better start doing some plays my friends want to see. Another form of censorship, another form of artistic control, which is besetting so many of our regional theaters, but the best of them are holding holding against this and are not compromising. They are not forcing playwrights to cut and uh, soften their plays. The very best of our regional theaters and local theaters around this country are presenting the kind of theater without which we cannot comprehend the nature of world theater.
0: In what ways do you feel art and specifically your plays have challenged and perhaps deconstructed what you call America's within censorship?
1: We all like to think that uh, what we write uh, is pertinent. We all like to think that our view of how our society is responding to all of the arts is, is the correct one. Some of us are right and some of us are not. Time will tell.
0: Question about, uh, another one about self-censorship, uh, the censorship within. Can you see any antidotes developing in any parts of our culture to counteract the dangers of the censorship within? What can be done?
1: We need to uh, educate, and which is why education comes back. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier something terribly important. I think kids have got to be educated in the arts even before they're aware that it's happening. I think during rest periods in kindergartens, the Beethoven string quartet should be playing so that people begin to understand the the essence and the nature of classical music before they understand what they're understanding. And at the same time, reproductions of the great 20th century cubist and abstract paintings uh, should be available to them so their eye can start comprehending the complexities of the complexities of art. I think these are terribly important things.
0: On that topic of education, in your travels or in the other societies of which you are aware, is there any model for providing a, a good stimulating arts education, a holistic education?
1: We have a dislike of intellectualism in the United States, the false assumption that it does not go with democracy. And uh, I find that uh, our elected representatives are far too often on the side of uh, anti-intellectualism. The fact that our, uh, the money we put into the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities is, is shameful. Uh, it is perhaps one tenth per capita of that which other democratic societies in Europe put into the support of the arts. And what's even worse, perhaps, is that what, no matter how small an amount of money we put in, to support the arts in this country. Our own money, by the way. The representatives and senators seem to think it's their money, but it isn't. Uh, 95% of the money that we give as a country to the arts does not go to creative artists. It goes to buildings and organizations, a kind of edifice complex. (laughs) Great theater great music, great art can be made on the streets. It does not need fancy buildings to occur. But 95% of the money does not go to creative artists. That really must change.
0: Question about television and other electronic media so prevalent in our society today. What impact are they making on the theater?
1: Well, since the law was passed, over my objections, that it was mandatory to have the television set on 20 hours a day in every household, (laughs) and and that this should not be put on public television, but only on the worst possible educational programs and non-educational programs possible, um, I find that the misuse of the wonderful opportunities that that the television presents. uh, to, be, uh, to, to be shameful. Uh, I find the fact that uh, programming in, in commercial television is based upon the will of the people, of the sponsors, the people who provide the money. I'm convinced, and I, I mentioned this to some people in Congress once, and they thought it was a wonderful idea, but that I was quite mad to propose it, that all money given to commercial in commercial programs on on television in the united states should be done by lottery and and that no sponsor could decide the content of any program because they would not know what program they were sponsoring This, this idea was apparently far too rational to go anywhere
0: Question from one of the students in the audience. Do you plot your plays out in advance or do they surprise you as you write them? Do you plot your plays out in advance or do, you, do they surprise you as you write them?
1: Well, I was partially answering that before. Uh, obviously, uh, I have made decisions about the nature of my plays before I am aware of the decisions that I have made about them. The creative act occurs both in the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And in my case, my unconscious mind is far more intelligent and far more organized than my conscious mind is. So, indeed, when a play moves into my consciousness and I'm aware of the characters that I'm inventing and I'm aware of the dilemmas that they're facing in the play, these are intellectual decisions that that I have made without being aware of it. But by the time I get to put the play down on paper, I know my characters well enough and I have some sense of the destination of the play to allow the characters or pretend to allow the characters to write the play for me. Uh, I've discovered that if you make a long list of what's going to happen in every scene of your play before you write it down, that what you get to the point that your characters don't want to do that, then you're faced with a great dilemma. Do you do what you think you were planning to do? Or do you do what you were really planning to do, except if you didn't know it consciously? And I always make the choice toward letting my characters have their
0: head. Another question from a student. Mr. Albee, what on earth inspired The Goat, or Who is Sylvia? Well, to answer
1: that question, you must know something about my play, The Goat, or Who is Sylvia? It is about a 50-year-old architect and uh, his very happy family, Uh, his wife, whom he adores and loves and his 17, 16-year-old son uh, who happens to be gay and they are handling that uh, far better than uh, most families uh, handle such matters. And uh, it occurs finally, there's a dilemma in the family because this man, this prize-winning architect has to reveal to his family that he is in love with and has been having a sexual relationship. With a female goat. The play, however, is not about bestiality. The play is about the limits of our tolerance. That which we will even think about without turning our backs. In this play, what I want people to do has it been done in Minneapolis yet?
0: I some time, yeah. Huh? How much more time do we or have? Has
1: it been done in Minneapolis yet? No. Well. No, it never will be, but uh, <laughs> what I want people to do when they see this play is to imagine how they would respond if they were in the situation of the characters. Not to sit back and, and, and make judgments. this is disgusting, this is unacceptable. I'm interested in the limits of our tolerance. What, what limits we, we place on that which we will think about and that which we, we, we will consider. It's interesting to me that in a number of productions of this play I've seen, because it's done a lot, there's a moment toward the, just after the middle of the play, where the son, the boy, Billy, uh, kisses his father, feels a sexual attraction for him and, and knows better, but kisses him passionately. That was the moment that audiences, members of the audience would get up and walk out. That, not the revelation that the father was having an affair with a goat, not that. <laughs> not the suggestion later in the, in, in the play that perhaps uh, Christ was a conscious suicide. None of that, but merely this? What kind of a society are we? It was fascinating, fascinating to me. I developed a theory <laughs> for my own pleasure when seeing the play in New York that when people got up, usually one couple would get up and storm out when the kissing scene occurred. I evolved the theory that it was the same couple every night. (laughs) (laughs) That they came back just so they could walk out.
0: What single play of others, not your own, would you recommend students read to best understand your perspectives, what other playwright might be doing things similar to you? How can one
1: possibly list just one play? There are a number of 20th century playwrights, I think that you, if you read their work and know their work, you'll understand where I came from, perhaps, and, and some of my concerns. Chekhov uh, is essential for a comprehension of 20th century drama, Pirandello, is essential. Nobody knows about him. He's not a very good playwright, but he was very important for what he did. More important than he he was a writer. And of course, the greatest playwright of the second half of the 20th century, Samuel Beckett. An understanding of what Beckett is about. Uh, This playwright who is so simple, so clear, that why he is mislabeled avant-garde and obscure, I will never know. Beckett's Post-existentialist rationality is probably one of the most important things that anybody who wants to write anything in the United States should learn, because Beckett was not only a playwright, he he, uh, changed the world of the novel as well, with his three great novels of uh, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable. Probably the most important novelist and playwright of the second half of the 20th century also.
0: For the students in the room particularly, any advice for budding playwrights? And this will be the final question.
1: Be sure that you're a playwright. Be sure that you don't think it is something that would be interesting to do, because life is not fair. And while life is unfair, the theater is far worse. (laughs) Virtue is not its own reward. Junk is more popular than serious work, Uh, you will be discouraged from performing your natural function, which is to hold that mirror up to people. You will will be encouraged to sell out, to soften, to do anything to be popular. The notion of being popular is one of the most destructive aspects uh, of our culture. The greatest minds and the greatest Political activists in our country have not been particularly popular. Popularity is a negative concept. So if you want to be a playwright, and you are a playwright, don't try to be popular. Try to tell it as you see it. Try to tell it as you know it. Um, But be sure you're a playwright. And if you are a playwright, don't be discouraged by anything that i said.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Edward Albee.